The scripture for this afternoon is from the book of Job, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. It can be found on page 446 uh, in the Blue Pew Bibles. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful me, wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come into your presence uh, this afternoon, or as we already have been called uh, into your presence, and as you already have uh, been at work uh, already uh, this, this afternoon, as we have sung your praise and have confessed sins and have heard um, of the forgiveness that in so many ways precedes our confession uh, as we have shared the peace uh, that we have with you. Um, we are present um, at every moment. We are aware uh, that, uh, that you are present and that you're at work, and no less now uh, as we come uh, to your word. Father, we are grateful for the promises that attach to your word uh, in Scripture, um, that, that it never goes out from you and returns without accomplishing all of its purposes, um, that it is living and active, that it pierces uh, to our very soul, souls like a two-edged sword, um, that it forms us, that it molds us more and more uh, into the likeness of your Son, that by hearing your word, uh, that's how faith comes. That's how faith is kindled. That's how faith is uh, nourished um, and, and how it grows. Um, we depend on, on all of these promises every week um, when we come to, to hear your word uh, read uh, and preached. Father, we would ask um, that it, it would be true of us as a people, that we would be a people of the word, that we would have it um, bound in front of our eyes, day and night, as it were, that we would repeat it uh, to ourselves and uh, to our, our, our friends and our roommates, our spouses, our children. Um, Father, that, that your promises, um, so many voices that we hear, uh, so much noise in our world, and we want your promises um, to begin to overwhelm those. Um, there are so many things that we see in uh, in, in the news or on social media, um, advertising, um, telling us to worship other things, to fear other things. Um, Father, would we be people of your word? Um, would your word begin to dominate um, our thoughts, um, our, our loves, um, our actions, uh, the way that we relate to each other? Father, thank you that you've given us prayer. Thank you that you have um, removed the, 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 the veil that separated us from you, so that we can come into your very presence with boldness, come before the throne of grace, 
um, cast our anxieties before you um, simply because you care for us, simply because you have asked us to place these things uh, before you. Um, Father, with the anxieties of the week that has passed, with the anxieties of the week that is in front of us, um, with the anxieties of the year uh, that is in front of us, with, with all of its uncertainties, Father, would we, um, in this hour and afterwards, be able to cast those in front of you and be able to let go um, and to recognize, as our call to worship reminded us, that you are God. Help us to be still. Um, Please quiet our hearts um, the way a mother quiets her children. Um, Please bring us into your presence uh, and assure us of of your love for us. Father, we need this. Um, I ask, uh, Father, uh, as we turn uh, to this passage, uh, that the meditations um, of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, last week, Bradley began with a, a climbing reference. Um, I am not a lead climber. Bradley has taken me climbing and has, has taught me a lot, but I have not gotten to the level where I'm going up by myself with that rope. I am always on one end of a rope with Bradley on the other end holding on to me. And I, and I feel um, it's actually not a bad metaphor for preaching this passage together with him. I'm, I'm thankful for the ways that we're able to sharpen each other uh, and learn from each other as we, as we go through this. And I almost feel like I should come up here, and if you know the commands, if you've ever gone climbing with Bradley, you know what this means if I come up here and say, on belay, and wait for him to say, belay is on, before I start heading up that wall. This past week um, has been a busy one. Um, I've been on campus at at MIT with Octet. Uh, Yesterday I was at uh, a Presbytery meeting uh, for the Southern New England Presbytery. And so I've I've been in person with a lot of people, uh, a lot more in the last week than than, uh, for for quite a while. Um, And I can't tell you how many times uh, in the past week I've heard again and again some version of, in in, in answer to the question, how are you doing, some version of, I'm tired. Uh, multiple people have used the metaphor of being out of shape. You know, that, that in some ways all of our social muscles, you know, the, the muscles that we use to actually move from point A to point B and to be with people um, in the same room and to have conversations that don't just click off at the end of the meeting, um, they've kind of atrophied uh, and we feel out of shape. Um, if that's where you are, I think this study of the fear of the Lord um, is going to be helpful, uh, is going to be tremendously uh, helpful. Um, Bradley began last week by giving us a definition um, of, of the fear of the Lord that we'll be using as we look uh, at this passage in, in Job. Um, that it is an awe-filled orientation towards God in all aspects of life that leads to obedience. Um, we're skipping to the end of Job this week. You might have noticed that. Uh, we started the, at the beginning last week. This week we read the end. Um, 
in order to begin this series by enriching as much as we can our definition, really understanding what, is, what does this fear of the Lord mean? What is this awe-filled orientation uh, toward God? Next week, Bradley is going to zero in on the connection between the fear of the Lord and wisdom in particular. Um, and then after that, we'll go back and, and trace through the book of Job to really see how this, how this plays out. Um, but to say that it is an awe-filled orientation, um, on the one hand, this has, this has aspects of saying that this is a wonder in his presence, an awe, uh, a deep respect and reverence uh, for God. Um, but I think there's also something that, in some sense, the fear of the Lord calls life out of us. That there's something that, I almost want to use the old you know, Puritan word, vivification, right? reviving, being enlivened, calling us to life, that the fear of the Lord is something that actually draws life um, out of us. I grew up in uh, California doing a different kind of climbing uh, on a bike. I was lucky enough to live near some of the best climbing um, on, on bikes in, in the world. I could ride for 15 minutes and be in the Santa Cruz Mountains on some of these just beautiful, beautiful roads. Um, and I remember my dad, who was also a cyclist, you know, talking about climbs and, and saying, you know, you got it. You approach these climbs. You got to respect the mountain. Um, the way he would put it is, you never defeat the mountain. The best you can ever do is work it to a draw. Um, but there was something about that. There was something just. There was an excitement the morning I woke up, knowing my dad and I were going on a long ride with a lot of climbing. Uh, it was going to be tough. And it was going to be exhausting, um, and it would, it would get me out of bed. Um, that, that respect, that awe, that wonder at what I was about to do uh, would draw life um, out of me. There's, there's something about the fear of the Lord, and I want us to talk about this today. It's very, very different from being afraid. There's a difference between fearing the Lord and merely being afraid. Being afraid can often send us in the other direction. Being afraid can be paralyzing. Uh, it can be deadening. Um, the things that I, that I want us to, to talk about um, today um, is, this one, is, one, this difference between what it means to fear the Lord and to be afraid. Um, but then I really want us to talk uh, about what it means for the fear of the Lord to move from our heads, something we know, into our hearts, something that begins to shape our affections, uh, begins to shape who we are. Um, the reason that we are using this passage here at the end is because by the end of Job, even though the words, the fear of the Lord, didn't appear in that passage, um, the evidence of the fear of the Lord um, is, is there. And not only ev the evidence uh, of, of Job is one who fears God, the very first verse said that he was a man who feared God, um, but there's evidence that it's moved, that it's developed, um, that it's sunk deep into his heart and changed uh, who he is. Um, and thirdly, the third thing that I want to see is that this connection between the fear of God and obedience, again, our definition, an awe-filled orientation toward God in all aspects of life that leads us to obedience. Right? It has purchase in our, in our actions and decisions. But that connection between the fear of the Lord and obedience ultimately is a matter of repentance. 
Um, being afraid can lead to obedience, but of a coerced kind. Um, but the fear of the Lord will lead us towards repentance, will lead us to obedience of a God, um, the way Augustine put it, a God in whose service is perfect freedom. Not a coerced obedience, but a, a, an obedience that is free. Something that we saw a lot of in First Peter, who encouraged us to live as people, were, uh, people who are free, uh, even, as we, even as we serve. Let me remind you, before we jump into this, of the reasons that we're looking at the fear of the Lord. Why are we talking about this theme? Why is it so important? Um, we talked about this last week. There are three. Um, the first is because this is a foundational theme that runs throughout Scripture um, that will help us to make sense of wisdom. The wisdom literature in the Bible, uh, some of the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job each have different takes on what wisdom is. Um, so as Bradley said last week, Proverbs kind of gives this ordered, structured picture of the world. It says the world pretty much works in this way. Uh, and if you can conform yourself to this reality as God has made it, then life will work. Ecclesiastes then comes along and says, but not always. It doesn't always go that way. Life is complex. It's more complex than that. Um, and as Bradley said, then there's Job, uh, which challenges the notion that we even know what that way is, that order uh, is, uh, because we're not the creator. Um, but at the root of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job is this connection between the fear of the Lord and wisdom. So that's the first reason we're studying this, because it will unlock for us um, the wisdom literature and the capacity to take in what the Bible has to say about wisdom. The second reason is because the fear of the Lord will sustain our faith in the midst of suffering. Um, it, will, it will change us into people who are robust and resilient uh, under suffering with faith that perseveres and endures and even is deepened and made more precious right, in the midst of suffering. And thirdly, because it will soften our hearts and lead us into the suffering of others. Give us the capacity to enter into the suffering of others where we would often rather hold back, where it's more comfortable. Um, so those are the three reasons we're looking at this. I thought of a fourth this week. This, this is not an overarching reason that we're looking at this, but I have a suspicion um, that, that one of the reasons that Bradley wanted us to talk about the fear of the Lord um, is, that, is that he must have opened up his logo software and just like looked up all of the references to the fear of the Lord and looked at them and thought to himself, this could keep us praying for a long time. Because if you've been at the prayer meeting uh, the past couple weeks, if you've been online with prayer, if you've been just about anywhere that we gather, um, we have been praying through passages that refer to the fear of the Lord. This last week we looked at Jeremiah 32, and spending time in that passage has impacted the way that I'm going to preach um, this, this sermon. It, it's, it's so rich, and it, it ties together uh, so well. Um, it's one of the beautiful things, I think, about um, coming to the Word in the process of the life of the church, right, is that... Is that what I'm doing right now, this is not a lecture, right? I'm not just delivering information. 
that would be the same in, in any context and could be lifted up and put into another one, it would be exactly the same. Um, when we come to the word, we do so in the middle of a life together, uh, a life that is centered around the word um, and which prayer is integral. So I would encourage you to, um, if you're not already part of a group that's praying uh, in this church, find one. And if you can't, let me know, let Bradley know. We will help you. Um, this is central to, to who we are. Um, all right. Let me talk about the book of Job. Since we've skipped to the end, um, I want to give a brief summary of what happens. Uh, most of you um, may, may know this, but it's worth going over. So Job, we met last week. Uh, a man who feared God, who was righteous, uh, who was prosperous. Um, and at the beginning of the book of Job, there is a scene in heaven where it says the sons of God uh, come into his presence and Satan comes with them. And God says, have you considered my servant Job, how righteous he is, how faithful? And Satan says, that's only because of how good you've been to him. If you were to take away his riches, he would curse you to his face. This challenge is laid down. Um, and God, for reasons that we'll get into more later when we really look at that passage, allows Satan to take from Job everything that he has, his wealth, uh, his family. Um, in the first round, he won't allow Satan to touch Job himself, but then there's a second round because after losing everything, as grievous as it is, Job still doesn't curse God. And Satan says, well, that's because I didn't touch him. And, Satan, or, and God says, all right, um, you can afflict him as long as you don't kill him. Um, and so Satan afflicts Job uh, with these painful sores all over his body. And he is just brought as low as you can be. He has lost everything, uh, including his health. And it says in all of this, he doesn't sin. He doesn't curse God. Um, a lot of the book from there is taken up. Uh, some friends show up. Um, and all you need to know about them, I forget which commentator it was, but somebody has referred to these friends as miserable comforters. So they're there ostensibly to offer comfort, but they're not good at it. Um, one of them is telling Job, listen, God is righteous. This must be, you must have done something. You must have sinned in some way. That's why you're suffering. Uh, another friend is telling Job, who at this point is just saying, I am innocent. I have done nothing. And I want to talk to God. I want an audience with God. Um, his second friend is telling him, who are you to ask for that? The creature can't just ask to stand in the presence of God. That's the second, that's the second friend. Um, this, is, this is most of the book. We'll, we'll, we'll spend time uh, looking at some of these. Again, through it all, Job doesn't sin. He doesn't curse God, but he gets, he gets close. Uh, things are really bad. He refuses to accept the arguments of his friends. He continues to insist he is innocent, and he demands uh, an audience with God. And at the end, God shows up. Chapters 38 to 41 are taken up with these... Uh, speeches isn't quite the right word. Um, it's the words of God. It's the presence of God. God himself um, shows up. And there is uh, a rebuke uh, implicit in, in what he says. Um, 
the, in verse 3 and in verses 4, if you notice, there were some quotations you might have seen. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Those are things that God said to Job. Um, God essentially says to him, I hear that you have questions for me, but in fact, I have some questions for you. Um, but at the same time as there's this rebuke, there's also this revelation. God reveals himself as Job's creator. Above all else, that's what he conveys. I made you. He doesn't necessarily give Job what Job wants, but he gives him exactly what he needs. Um, we'll spend some time looking at those speeches and seeing exactly uh, what that means. And when we come to this passage now, in chapter 42, we hear Job's response to that, and we hear a response of repentance. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So, let me raise one question right at the beginning of, of, of our study. Here's the, here's the usual question that people have when they, when they read this book. Um, the usual question is, uh, does this book explain evil? Does it explain suffering? Right? Um, one thing that God does not say to Job when he shows up, he doesn't tell him anything about that conversation with Satan at the beginning. Job never learns about any of that. So there's not that kind of an explanation given. Here's what was going on. Nevertheless, is this in some way what theologians refer to as a theodicy, a justification of God in the presence of evil? Does this solve the problem of evil? There's a couple ways that we can say it's definitely not one of the more modern forms of solving that, that problem. Um, so, for example, one modern form of solving this problem um, to, is, is to say, well, you know, if the problem, the problem is if we have an all-powerful God who is loving, then how can there be evil? And one modern way of addressing that is to say, actually, God's not all-powerful. He's not in control of everything. Um, Job just rules that out. Uh, right here uh, in verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So one explanation that this book does not give, Job is not left saying, okay, I get it. I'm suffering because no one's really in charge. No one's in control. Um, that's bad, but it makes sense, right? It makes logical sense. That's not the explanation uh, that, that Job gives. Um, it's also not giving the explanation. If you read down to the end of this chapter, you see verse 10, the Lord restored the, for the fortunes of Job. And if you're familiar with this, you know that Job ends up um, with just as much, much wealth restored. He has children again. Um, but Job is not trying to give an explanation that says, see, everything turned out okay in the end. Um, and, that's, and that's the justification. There was something at the end that Job ended up with even better than he had. Um, and, that's, and that's the reason. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's the explanation. Um, 
I think this is important because because I have heard um, that justification for evil and for suffering um, offered. Um, you might be familiar with uh, this, this quote. Um, so my favorite novel uh, is Brothers Karamazov um, uh, by, by, by Dostoevsky. Um, and there's a quote in there where one of the brothers, Ivan Karamazov, who's, who's wrestling with this problem, this problem of evil, this problem of suffering, he says this to his brother, Alyosha. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make, make it possible not only to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Um, now, some of you have heard that quote recently. Um, in the past week, uh, a lot of people were sharing around the sermon that, that Tim Keller preached um, on September 16th, 2001. Um, that was actually when I was living in, in New York City um, and a, a, attending Redeemer. Um, so I was, I was there uh, for that sermon. Um, and he brings this quote in, you know, as, as, as to argue that in the end, something pr so precious will happen um, that it will make it possible to justify all of the evil and suffering that has come before. Um, here's where I have to make confession. This is, this is the one place um, that I know of where I've heard Tim Keller say something, and I really disagree. Um, it, we'll edit the podcast later, get, get that taken out. Um, here's the thing, here's the reason. Um, if you keep reading The Brothers Karamazov, what does Yvonne say next? What does Yvonne say after saying, I believe that something so precious will happen at the end that it will make it possible to forgive and justify all that has come before? What he says is, if that's the way it's going to be, no thank you. That's not good enough. He says... His phrasing is, I respectfully return my ticket. Stop the train, I want to get off. Because he knows, he's been talking about the example of the suffering of an innocent child at the hands of abusive parents. He's been saying, and he says, it doesn't matter how much beauty there is to come. Nothing can justify that. The problem with this, with this idea is this idea that somehow something glorious can justify all that has happened. We just read 1 Peter, and Peter does talk about hope for an eternal glory that outweighs temporary and limited suffering. So scripture says that the glory that is to come will outweigh the suffering, but to say that it would justify it, that would be to give evil and suffering a place in the world, to make it something that actually had to happen, something that it was actually better that evil exists, it better that sin exists, better than death exists, um, in order to get uh, to, something, to something greater. And I think Yvonne is right. If that's the nature of the universe, no thank you. Um, 
I want to remind you, Scripture does not ask us to believe that. Scripture describes a God who is not in the business of justifying evil and giving sin and death a place in the world. He is in the business of destroying it. He, he is in the business of swallowing up death from the inside. He never asks us to look at what is evil and call it good, to turn that on its head. Um, he never asks us not to tell the truth, that sin and evil and death don't belong in the world. Um, this is what Job has been insisting on throughout the entire book. Um, I am innocent. There is no explanation. What is happening to me has no place. It doesn't make sense. Um, and when God shows up, he does not offer any kind of a logical explanation for here's why it makes sense. He doesn't ask Job to believe that. Um, this is the character of, 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 of our faith. Um, David Bentley Hart points out that our faith doesn't work the way, say, Greek tragedy does. You know, Greek tragedy, you have these tragic heroes, um, and they have some fatal flaw, and they live nobly, and it's admirable, and they die a noble death, and you kind of look up to that, you know, and you can be comforted, in a sense, um, by the, the nobility of this, of this tragic death. But then he says, you look at Jesus, and up to the point where Jesus dies, it, it tracks along, and you could be consoled. What a noble, selfless martyrdom. That could be very comforting and consoling. And then Jesus has the audacity to not stay dead and takes that form of consolation away. And, and if you remember, the first women who saw the empty tomb, Mark says that they were full of what? Fear. They went away trembling. They went away afraid. The fear of something so joyous. The fear of something that seems impossible. Um, Keller had one other quote that I think is, is really on the mark for this in that, in that September 11th sermon. Um, when he quoted Tolkien at the very end of The Lord of the Rings, when Sam sees Gandalf and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? That's more the form of the, the consolation. For now, let's leave this question of whether this is a theodicy or not. We'll come back to that. Um, but I want us to look at these two things that Job says. He says, I repent. But the second thing is he says, now I've seen you. And that's where the fear of the Lord is moving from his head to his heart. Um, Bradley mentioned this scholar that we're looking at, Eleanor Stump, um, who has been very eye-opening and, and, and mind-blowing in looking at this, at, this, at this passage. And the thing that she keeps pointing to um, is the use of the second person. Um, in, in the book of Job. She keeps pointing out, you, know, you can't think of Job like it's a philosophical treatise. You can't overlook the form. It's a narrative. It's a story. And there's dialogues. People are talking to each other. And most importantly, God is talking to Job. And when he reveals himself as, as, as creator, he, he, he reveals how he speaks to his creation, the way a father would talk to his child, the way a mother would comfort her child. 
um, this use of, of, of the second person. When Job says, I had heard of you with my ear, but now I've seen you, he's recognizing that what's happened here is that he's moved from knowing about God to knowing him. And more importantly, to being known by him. God pursues Job uh, to the end that Job would know God and would know that God knows him, to the end of intimacy with him. Um, If you are in the midst of suffering, an important question to ask yourself would be, when you come to Scripture, when you come to prayer, do you find yourself reading and thinking about God in the third person? Do you find yourself thinking about who he is, about his greatness, uh, about his promises? Are you pursuing a second person relationship with God? Are you pursuing intimacy with him? Are you seeking not just to know about him, but to know him? Are you able to receive the gift of being known, being known intimately by a God who speaks to you in the second person, who called you into existence with his word, who called you to new life by his spirit. The thing that has changed uh, Job, um, and and I think this is interesting, in in a sense, if you think back to what Job's friends were saying, they were all encouraging him to think in either first or third person terms, right? One was saying, Job, it's your sin. You got to focus on yourself. You're the problem. Think in the first person. The other one is saying, who are you to demand an audience before God? Think about God in the third person. Think about who he is. Um, But when God shows up, he rebukes those friends and speaks in the second person, speaks directly uh, to his his creation. Um, Stump gives this great uh, illustration uh, for for one way to understand this. She says, you know, imagine that you were, you know, a political science professor um, at a a, a community college, um, and you had been very critical of the president's policies, right? and then one morning, you wake up, and there's a motorcade out front, and the president is at your door, and he comes into your house, and he delivers a stinging rebuke of your critiques, right? right? Pulls no punches. And Stump says, even if it was all stinging rebuke, the fact that the president had showed up at your house would elevate your status immediately. Like, you're, you're no longer just some no-name political science professor at a at a community college, the president showed up to deliver his message to you directly. The value that God places on Job's life as his, as his creation. Um, we're going to see this a lot more as we go further uh, into, this, into this book. Um, but I want to preview these, these verses for you. Um, Job has been clinging to this very hope throughout the book that because God is his creator, um, he's been clinging to hope that there is an actual, that there is an affection of God for him. In in chapter 14, here's something that he says in, in one of his speeches responding to his friends along the way. 
He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. I mean, the audacity to talk about how God would long for the work of his hands. Um, God is the transcendent God. He is high and lifted up. Um, his longing can't be out of some kind of lack, you know, some, some, something that he doesn't have that he needs uh, Job uh, to fill in him. It can only be something that is pure, utterly proactive, um, not in any way reacting uh, to something that, that he has lost. Um, and then Job has the further audacity to say this, and, and you probably know these verses. If you know any verses from Job, you know that he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Um, I love the phrasing there. My eyes, these eyes, the ones in my head, will be restored to be able to see my Redeemer standing on the earth. His heart faints as the fear of the Lord, the awe, the wonder, is moving uh, from, from head uh, to heart. Um, and in some ways, he's already holding out this hope for resurrection. Uh, this hope, again, if a man dies, shall he live again? He doesn't answer that question. But in some ways, the hope that he's expressing has to be, yes, that even then, if, if, if I meet with death, God will long for the work of his hands. And there is hope in resurrection that refuses that consolation of a tragic death. I want to finish up just by looking at this repentance that he expresses. As I said, the connection between the fear of the Lord and obedience um, is that we are moved to repentance. He says, I despise myself, which in this context, given what he's been saying here, I think is best read as saying, I reject all of the previous attempts that I had to, as he says, utter what I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me, which I didn't know, because I simply didn't know what I was talking about. I had heard of you, but now I've seen you. And so I despise all of that came before, uh, and I repent. And this word repent, I almost passed over it. You know, we use the word repent so often that I almost didn't really ask myself, you know, wonder what that word really means. What's it getting at? But when I looked at this particular word, I discovered there's a few different words that get translated as repent uh, in the Old Testament. The most common translation for this word, repent, you might have a footnote in your Bible, is I am comforted. I relent. I let go. This is almost the picture that we get in Psalm 133. In fact, it's almost the same words. Excuse me, Psalm 131. 
Psalm 131 is short. Let me read it. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's the form of the repentance uh, that Job Uh, is expressing here. Um, It's not until the New Testament that we see what it costs God to offer us, this this consolation. We get a little hint of it um, here in this chapter. Um, After these these words, God turns to Job's friends and rebukes them even more uh, harshly. He says, my anger burns against you uh, and against your your two friends. He's speaking to the three of them. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Um, And so he asks Job to intercede for them, uh, to make a sacrifice and to pray. But this just points forward to how ultimately God will do that himself. How ultimately it is God who will intercede. It was God who will make a sacrifice. It is God who will pray. While Jesus is being nailed to the cross, he will pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, This is the most fearful thing of all, in some ways. A God who is high and lifted up, but who dwells with the lowly and broken of heart. A God who is transcendent, and yet who is made man, is made flesh, and humbles himself to the point of death. Romans 2 reminds us that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Psalm 130, a psalm that we use often in our liturgy here, reminds us that with him there is forgiveness. Therefore, he may be feared. Listen, if you're exhausted, I want to encourage you to take that exhaustion to the one place where you can be revived. Take it to the foot of the cross. Experience the wonder. Experience the awe. As the hymn says, man of sorrows, what a name. Alleluia, what a savior.